We are in a series on the most famous, the most comprehensive, the most practical speech in human history, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today we are going to look at what Jesus has to say about marriage, sex, and communication. Three of the most attractive elements, by the way, of Christianity. And parents, I want you to know I'm going to do this in a PG way, but I do want you to know that we are going to talk about marriage, sex, and communication. Not only are these statements that Jesus makes so incredibly attractive, but they're among some of Jesus' most difficult statements, most challenging, most widely dismissed, ignored, because here what Jesus is doing is taking common cultural norms and flipping them upside down and calling, calling us his followers to not just a beautiful life, but a life that is countercultural, a, a life that is radical, so very radical in the eyes of the world. So we're today in Matthew chapter 5, and I'd like to begin in verse 27. Jesus is speaking, and he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone that divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven for it's God's throne or by earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now there's three paragraphs here. And each of the three begin by Jesus saying, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. Jesus does that actually six times in this chapter. But what I want you to understand, what is so very important to understand, is that Jesus is not contrasting the Old Testament with the New Testament, the Old Testament with his teaching. But what he is contrasting is the narrow, rigid, incorrect interpretation of the self-righteous Pharisees and religious leaders throughout the centuries in Israel with what actually the Old Testament teaches, what Jesus reveals it teaches. So, for example, real quickly, just as an overview, when you go to verses 27 and 28, 
Jesus quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But the religious leaders that interpreted that so narrowly, they reduced it to the physical act of adultery only. But Jesus says, no way. Adultery is a matter of the heart, lust, before it's a matter of your behavior. We see the same thing again in verses 31 and 32. The Jews allowed divorce in Jesus' day and prior to Jesus' day, often for just about anything. And Jesus is saying, time out. God created marriage to be permanent, with one exception. Paul will add a second. Finally, in this last paragraph at the beginning, in verses 33 and 34, the Jews encourage ridiculous statements to validate truth. And Jesus says, live it. Live it and speak it. Now what I want to do is I want to take these first two subjects this morning, marriage and sex, and treat them as a unit. Look at the first two paragraphs. And I'm going to spend most of my time here. And then we'll come to communication in the final paragraph in just a little bit. So we need to begin with some definitions and, and ask the question, well, what is marriage according to the Bible, according to the Old Testament of what Jesus was talking about? And, and what is the Old Testament sexual ethic? You shall not commit adultery. Well, marriage according to the Bible is a covenant. It, it, it's a picture. It's a reflection of God's covenant with his people. And the sexual ethic is that there shall be no sex outside that covenant, only inside the covenant. Now, what does it mean to talk about marriage as a covenant? That's a word that we often don't use very much, but it's a rich biblical term. Well, the reason we talk about marriage as a covenant is in part because of God's covenant with his people, uh, but also because a covenant relationship is more intimate, intimate than a legal relationship, a legal contract, and it's more binding, more enduring than a casual, convenient, emotional relationship. Now look at how Jesus describes marriage in Matthew chapter 19. Beginning in verse 4, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's absolutely profound and beautiful. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, therefore, what God has joined together, as we hear in marriage ceremony after marriage ceremony, let no one separate. Now that is the language of covenant. And a covenant relationship, and here's where I'm teasing this out now, is very different than a consumer relationship. Because in a consumer relationship, and this is what we do every time we shop, you're looking for the best price, the best offer, the most upgrades. And the logic is you adjust to me, 
Because what you're offering me is more important than our relationship. And if it's not a good offer, I'm out of here. So a consumer relationship is adjust to me or I'm gone. A covenant relationship is just the opposite. It says, I will adjust to you because I made a promise to you when we are one flesh in our, our marriage. And that promise I made to you is more important than my needs. A pastor, Tim Keller, who's been very helpful to me in this area, has a whole lot of stuff to say on, on marriage in his book, Meaning of Marriage tells us when we understand the covenant nature of a marriage relationship, there are two wonderful things that happen. The first is it creates a safety zone. You're safe. You're free to be who you are. You can be yourself. But in a consumer relationship, you're always selling. You're always uh, marketing yourself. Am I pretty enough? Am I good enough? Do I make enough? The second thing Keller says is that a, a covenant relationship creates a commitment, a fundamental commitment, despite your feelings or your circumstances. And there's actually an irony here relative to our feelings because our feelings of love and gentleness and compassion grow way more in the context of a commitment than they do any other way. Because you invest and you keep on investing uh, despite disappointment, despite setbacks, despite how you feel. Now the best illustration of this is parenting. This is what we do as parents. A little... Um, Two-year-old Buck Stud is driving you crazy. But you love him anyway. He's your son. And you are committed to him for the rest of his life, for the rest of your life. So in a, in a, a covenant relationship, we say, I love you despite. I mean, whore of whores, I love you if you don't like chocolate. Yeah, amen. Or you snore. Or you're a Packers fan, sorry. But consumer relationships, and we have to see this. This is going on all around us. I want you to see this. Consumer relationships are always transactional. What am I getting from you? If I don't like it, I'm gone. Now, now, that's marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Let's talk about divorce, and let's jump to verses 31 and 32, then we'll come back. What was going on in Jesus' day is that large groups of religious leaders, not all religious leaders, but uh, certain larger groups were, were arguing that you could divorce for whatever reason under the sun. You didn't like what your, how your wife cooks. You don't like how she looks as she's aging. Well, divorce, divorce, get, you know, get out of there. All you need is a certificate uh, of divorce. I mean, think how abusive that it was, that is today. 
It's all predicated on convenience, on, on preferences, on feelings. And Jesus is saying here in these two verses that marriage isn't about feelings. It's not about circumstances. It's not about your health. It's not about your looks. It's permanent. But if, you've, but if there's been adultery, you are allowed to divorce and remarry. Now Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and adds a second ground. And he says, if you are deserted, if your spouse leaves, then you are also free to divorce and remarry. Many of us, including myself, believe that abuse in all its forms is a form of desertion. And so if you came to me and you're in a highly abusive situation, I would say get out of that right now, separate, and let's see what happens. And it may need to lead to divorce. Desertion, adultery are the two grounds of divorce in the New Testament. Now, what Jesus is arguing here is simply what I just said, that, that marriage is to be permanent. God created it to be permanent. And I know, I, I need to go on and say, I know this emphasis on permanence is hard for many of you right now. Because you tried, 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 tried to make your marriage work and it didn't. Or when you go back in time in your mind, which you do a lot, you realize you made some really bad decisions and you deeply regret them. And I, I get this. I'm the product of a divorced parents, a divorced home. And I get the pain. I get the consequences. I get the guilt. But please, what happened, happened. And if Jesus Christ and his work on the cross means anything, his death in our place for our sins, it means there is total forgiveness and resurrection, new life in Christ. And the last thing God wants you to do is to carry that guilt through life because Jesus carried it for you to the cross. And if Jesus was crucified once and for all, and he was, why in the world would you want to continue to crucify yourself? There is complete, abundant forgiveness for any sin, any sin. And yet the biblical standard is that marriage is a covenant relationship. It's not a consumer relationship. And when you're in your life groups, and you're working through your, uh, these sermon guide booklets. Man, I want you to talk about that. I want you to think about the difference and, and, and what it means. Now let me go on. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about divorce. Now let's talk about sex. And really all I'm going to do is build on what I just said, what Jesus has just said. Because according to Jesus here, sex is not a consumer good it's a covenant experience. 
Now, those of you that are students that are here, uh, those of you that are young adults, uh, I, I, I want you to hear this because the consumer view of sex, seeing sex as a, a primarily consumer relationship, is dominant in our schools, dominant in all our campuses, uh, dominant in our, in, in our culture. And, and what is that? Well, it's someone thinking, I want sex. Therefore, I'm going to use you to that end. I'm going to use her to that end. Or it's someone thinking, I want validation. I really need validation here in high school or uh, junior high or wherever. I, I, I need a relationship, so I... I'm going to use sex with him for that purpose. And it's a consumer relationship. Jesus says, no, sex is to be used in, in the context of a, a covenant relationship where we share not only our own bodies, but we share our entire lives. So Keller says, sex is a sacrament. It's an ongoing, continual covenant covenant renewal ceremony. It's an external sign of the invisible reality of a covenant permanent commitment to one another in love. So you make yourself naked because you make yourself naked in every other quarter of your life, in your marriage relationship, emotionally, intellectually, intellectually and spiritually. And there is an integrity between what you do with your body and what you do with your life. And it's all part of the same seamless tapestry. So this is the problem with sex outside of marriage or sex before marriage. You are doing something with your body you're not doing with your whole life. And so it's selfish, it's demeaning, it's consumerism. I'm trying to say this as strongly as I possibly can because we are up against it today and what Jesus is calling us to do is, in fact, upside down. And we'll struggle with, some of us will struggle with this each and every day of our lives. Now let me say parenthetically something about cohabitation, living together. What the research is showing us is that it's not working like we think it is. I mean, we want to live together because we want to discover if we're compatible, that kind of thing. Okay. Are you awake? And, and, and so, it's, you know, it's this experiment. But what the research is telling us, it's, it's a problem. It's actually flawed because if you are, in a, you are living together short of marriage, you are always in a guarded relationship. You're not free. As a matter of fact, what you're doing is you have to continually market or sell yourself. Am I pretty enough? Am, am I good enough? Uh, do I do this? Do I, I, I do that? And over time, you know what happens? You're really more selfish than loving uh, uh, because you, you have to market. 
I mean, one woman said, when we were living together, now we're going to go to sleep. <laughs> Good night, everyone. So let's push through because I believe God wants to speak through his word, right? Can I have an amen? And what we're talking about is not irrelevant, right? Okay, I, I find this to be very, very interesting. Okay, God, give us a break now. Okay, God, stop this. Okay, Spirit, we've just been singing about you. Okay, here we go. Here we go. So was I talking about one woman? As one woman said, when, when I was living together, I felt like I was in a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week audition. There's no safety zone. Please, please, please don't do that. Jesus says you shall not commit adultery. Now let's go on. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about divorce. Uh, um, we talked about sex. Now let's look at verse 28 and talk about lust. Jesus says lust is a form of adultery. Lustfully is the word he uses. Now don't misunderstand. Now if there are some of you here that uh, you're not committed to Jesus Christ and you're trying to figure this out, man, we are so glad you are here. But this is where Christianity gets a bad rap and it's undeserved. Because Jesus is not saying if you find someone of the opposite sex attractive, then that's lust. As a matter of fact, the Bible is a celebration of sexual desire, sexual intimacy. It's the Song of Solomon, an entire book in the, in the Bible. As a matter of fact, when God creates Eve and brings Eve to Adam, Eve is naked. And Adam is naked. And Adam takes a look at Eve and he, and he uh, utters this love poem. You are bone of my bones. You are so beautiful. You are flesh of my flesh. I can't believe what I'm seeing. And so Adam and Eve are naked in the presence of God. And that is how the Bible begins. Uh, so the Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible is not an anti-sexual desire. The Bible is for the celebration of it in the context of a covenant relationship. Jesus uses the word lust. And it's a, a word that is over and over in the New Testament used to describe evil desires. Not exclusively, but e evil desires. Think of it as an evil craving. We make and form habits because of our cravings. So what is lust here? Well, lust is wanting to have sex. It's not just seeing somebody as attractive. It's wanting to have sex with that person because he or she is attractive to you. And so you fantasize about it. You even start to think about it, to plan it out. It's you taking something that is not yours and trying to make it your own. It's you taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. I have to have this, and that is idolatry which is precisely what porn is and all sorts of other things. 
Now, this has been illustrated by greed. Now, there's nothing wrong with having money or, or making money. But greed wants money for the wrong reasons. Greed wants money to make you feel significant, to make you feel important, to make you feel safe and secure, to make you feel better. So it's taking a good thing, money, and making it an ultimate thing because it determines the value, it satisfies the deepest longings of your heart. So you think. And by the way, greed always reveals how deeply insecure we really are. Because we need something horizontal that can only be experienced vertically. Uh, so you're trying to get uh, from money something that only God will give you. So what do you do? Well, you cut corners. Uh, you um, do things you shouldn't do. Uh, you work too hard. You cut off relationships. You hurt family. Uh, uh, you don't have time for this or that, the important things, because money is your God, and it's exactly the same with lust. Lust is taking some aspect of creation, physical attraction, and using it to find satisfaction and fulfillment in only something the Creator will give us. That's idolatry. And lust, like greed, becomes a God. And that God makes a terrible, terrible, terrible master. So now we got to ask the question, what are we to do? And the answer Jesus gives us is in verses 29 and 30. Now, when we come to these verses and we read, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand, we must understand that Jesus is not speaking literally because let's say the eye is gone or, or the hand is gone, you still have the lust in your heart. It doesn't really solve anything. So Jesus is not speaking literally, he's speaking metaphorically. And he gives us these two metaphors and the point he is making is lust has such devastating consequences that you must take drastic measures to deal with it. It's not just don't watch this movie, but if Netflix is a problem for you, get rid of Netflix. Or if your computer late at night is a problem, have your wife sleep on top of your computer. <laughs> I mean, good luck with that, right? I mean, sometimes our wives need to treat us men like we're teenagers. You know, if your boss comes to you and says, hey, I, I need you to do this, and you say, well, I'm not comfortable doing this, and he says, well, um, if you're going to stay here, you need to do this, then you immediately start looking for another job. You don't quarter it. You don't counter it. Uh, you seek help. You, you bring in friends. You seek accountability. You do not get overly friendly and touchy with members of the opposite sex. Because Jesus says twice, you will be in danger of hell.
Now, let's go on. And let's talk briefly about communication. This begins in verse 33. It goes through that paragraph all the way to the end of verse 37. We can do this fairly quickly because Jesus' point is so very simple. Jesus is saying always, always be truthful in how you live and what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't equivocate. Now, but what I want you to understand in saying this is Jesus is placing tremendous value on our words. Tremendous importance. I mean, maybe Jesus is thinking about some of the Proverbs. A, a proverb like 18, 21. Words, the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. So what the proverb is saying, when you love or care about your words, what do you do? You respect them. You respect your own words. You respect the words of others. Because you know they have the power to delight or destroy, the power to edify and build up, or the power to tear down. You know what? I am so fed up in this marriage. You are such a loser. You know, man, we've got a problem. And it's on me as much as it's on you. Can we talk about this? Because I am so committed to you. But we have to change. I can't believe you did that again. You're 17 years old. You know, son... This is wrong. And you know it. And I know it. And so let me tell you a story about something I did that was wrong. And let's see how the gospel can change us. I hate you! I believe you have all the potential in the world. I can't believe what God is going to do in your life. But let's talk about this. The tongue has a power of life and death. And when you care about your words, you respect words, then you will be so very careful. And what's going on underneath Proverbs 18, 21, and for that matter, Jesus' statements about our words here in Matthew chapter 5 is the assumption that we all battle with honesty. That we all have a tendency to shade the truth, to make ourselves look good. That we all have a tendency to live a lie. Every bit as much as we struggle with lust because we have sinful fallen hearts. Growing up, I lied, I lied so much to my single parent mother that it became second nature to me because she would keep me from what I wanted to do. And I mean, who does that with a 15-year-old? That's facetious. And so I lied and I lied and it all exploded one night when I got arrested and thrown in jail. 
And the lie I was living was revealed. Bob lies to his boss about how hard he works. Jane lies to Bob about how she spends her money. Brian lies to Bob and Jane, his parents, about what he does on the internet. All of them lie to the grandparents about how happy they are, and that's just one family. We all battle with dishonesty. No wonder James in chapter 5 says the tongue is a fire. It's a world of evil. And he goes on and says it corrupts the whole person, sets on fire the course of one's life. It's set on fire by hell. You and I have word problems, and, and this is what Jesus wants to, to see. Because we have heart problems, just like we have lust problems, because we have heart problems. Now, if you want to read about words, I highly recommend Paul's Tripp's book, War on Words. Look at how he illustrates the heart problem underneath our words. He says this, Whenever I am dishonest or trim or shade truth, I am loving myself more than God or others. There's a heart issue. Trimming the truth is saying less than needs to be said. Dishonesty occurs when we look out for ourselves first. I want your respect, acceptance, so I trim the truth to hide my faults. I find confrontation distasteful, so I avoid issues that lead to conflict, even though they're necessary for healing. There are things that I want from you, so I shade the details to my advantage. I mean, who's not guilty? I'm at the head of the list. We have word problems because we love ourselves more than we love God and we love others. And so the question now, and I'm going to conclude, is what do we do about adultery? What do we do about lust? What do we do about uh, dishonesty? How do we overcome? How can we possibly change? Is it by trying harder? Finding techniques? Finding seven steps? No, the point Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom life, kingdom living, according to Jesus, is impossible. Jesus wants us to understand the bar's too high. We can't do this on our own. So he's driving us, he's pulling us to turn to him. He's inviting you to come to Jesus. Man, I've got this issue, I've got these issues. Christianity does not start with a strong God who says, muscle up. But a weak God, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, suffering, torturing, went to the cross and dying for us. Because we can't muscle up. The beauty of Jesus, think about this, the beauty of Jesus was that he lost his beauty. He was willing to lose his beauty for you. Uh, the strength of Jesus is his, was his willingness to become weak for you. To absorb the wrath of God on the cross that we might find beauty and strength in him. 
So the key to following Christ, the, uh, the key to change is to admit our brokenness, to admit our weakness, lust, uh, uh, dishonesty, uh, whatever, and to turn to Jesus, to receive Jesus, to continue to cling to Jesus that we might find forgiveness, restoration, and transformation. In Jesus Christ, God gives you a gift. Stop trying to buy it. Turn to Jesus. Come to him. So we say, the gospel isn't just the starting line. It's the whole race. And Father, we praise you for the wonder of your mercy to us in Jesus. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that are here that are uh, caught in the snare of one of these issues, these sins. Use your word by the power of your spirit to bring change that all of us might glorify you together. Amen.